Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. April 19th, 11 a.m., Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Jesse Thomas was in a hurry. As the reporter on duty for Global News in Halifax on a Sunday morning, he had started his day with a call he didn't expect, to chase down what felt like a huge story, an active shooter on the loose in rural Nova Scotia. As he drove north from Halifax at around that time, he could see police cars along the highway. There was a helicopter overhead. Tweets from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police told him the gunman was near the town of Brookfield, about an hour outside the city. But then... I started seeing uh, just a stream of officers, some in marked cruisers, un in, uh, uh, unmarked cars, flying at me. Um, maybe 15, 20 cars. It felt like, uh, you know, the Daytona 500. They were just whipping by. He turned his vehicle around followed the line of police cars to a gas station he had passed a few minutes before. I made my way back to that truck stop, and that's when uh, all the police officers had congregated on there. It seemed like, you know, probably 50 cars. The helicopter landed nearby. DNR chopper, DNR helicopter from RCMP command post, two copy. Yeah, go ahead for support. Roger, we have reports of the suspect down at the Enfield Big Stop off of uh, exit 11, bound 102. At that point, one of the officers that was setting up a barricade, I asked, did you guys catch him? And he just shook his head and then said yes. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I'm a global news reporter and anchor in Halifax. And on that cold, clear Sunday, April morning, I woke up to those same RCMP tweets that said a manhunt was underway. I texted my boss and offered to come in on my day off. I was just about to head to the station when I heard the shooter had been caught. No one knew this at the time, but we were witnessing the end of one of the deadliest shooting sprees in Canada's modern history. At the center of the mayhem was a 51-year-old denturist with a violent past who had just spent hours on the run with a cache of illegal weapons murdering at will. The killing spree spanned more than 150 kilometers in all and left 22 innocent people dead at 16 different crime scenes. The most astonishing part of how it ended is that Despite all of the police resources dedicated to the pursuit, it all came down to an unexpected encounter. 
While he's at the gas pumps, one of our tactical resources came to the gas station to refuel their vehicle. When the officer exited the vehicle, there was an encounter and the gunman was shot and killed by police at 11.26 in the morning. That's how it ended. But to understand how this happened, how a shooter was able to terrorize a quiet coastal community and then take that terror on the road for as long as he did, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go through it hour by hour. So that's what we're going to do on this podcast. We'll try to piece together what happened and we'll ask what could or should have been done to prevent this tragedy. We're also going to introduce you to every one of the 22 people who were lost. This is 13 hours inside the Nova Scotia massacre. Episode one, a shattered quiet. Before I take you through that first hour, I wanna tell you about what life is like here in Nova Scotia. Around here, I'm what's known as a come from away. You've probably heard of the term because of the Tony award-winning musical set in Newfoundland. It's sort of affectionate, but also a reminder that I won't ever be from Nova Scotia. You see, I was born and raised more than 4,000 kilometers away in a tiny town in the middle of the prairies surrounded by wheat fields. I moved to the Maritimes after university. I left home with a stern warning from my mom to only stay for five years and not to put down any roots. I've failed on both accounts. Like so many people who come here, I've fallen in love with this place. You should know that Nova Scotians and Maritimers really take pride in being friendly and welcoming. I live in the capital, Halifax, and although there are about 430,000 people here, it's the kind of place where honestly, I'm surprised if I don't run into somebody I know when I go out. Another half a million Nova Scotians live spread out in smaller communities like the one you'll be hearing about in this episode. These are mostly clustered along the 13,000 kilometers of coastline, and why not? Nova Scotia is stunningly beautiful, a hidden gem, a well-kept secret that for the most part, locals don't really mind keeping. The unique shores of the Bay of Fundy have been shaped by the power of the highest tides in the world. You won't find white sandy beaches on this coast and the water's pretty much always cold. There are jagged cliffs carved out with caves and surrounded by mud flats. Millions of years of crashing waves have exposed fossils of prehistoric animals that once called this place home. This power refuses to be harnessed. Visitors fall in love with this ever-changing coastline, where you can actually see the passage of time in the rise and fall of the tide. What I'm trying to say is Nova Scotia is an unlikely setting for a story like this especially the small rural communities on the shores of the Bay of Fundy. There's a sense of trust here. I'm not saying that people don't lock their doors, but I've been to places that operate on the honor system. Leave cash, take what you paid for. It's in one of these quiet towns that this story begins, a place I hadn't even heard of before April. Portapique. 
To get there from Halifax, you drive north on the Trans-Canada Highway for about an hour, and then it's about half an hour's drive west, following the coast. Lisa and Lori George own a slice of the shoreline in Highland Village, which is right next to Portapique. When I visited months after the tragedy, the tide was out, the sky was gray and threatening rain. Lisa welcomed me into her yard. Her long blonde hair blew in the breeze and she was optimistically wearing a sundress in spite of the clouds. She was easygoing, warm, definitely a people person. Oh, yeah, easily. Like you just come down along, you know? As we chatted and got set up, it started to pour. Lisa's husband, Lori, appeared out of nowhere and set up a tent. That's what they do, taking care of others. You could hear the wind in the tent as we talked about the place that Lisa calls home. Like, it's all a huge community, even even though we're divided into sections, uh, we all still take care of each other from one end, like from Great Village right through to Bass River, right? So it's kind of like a huge community, just divided. Driving here, I had noticed that too, that if it wasn't for the brightly painted signs welcoming me to each community, I'd probably have trouble telling where those divisions lie, following the highway west from Great Village to Highland Village to Portapique to Bass River. There's a little more of a downtown in Great Village, a gas station, a restaurant, some antique shops. But once you pass that, it's a long stretch of highway to Portapique, where the white lines are painted at the very edge of the asphalt, and the trees are sometimes right up to the shoulder. In between homes and farm fields, you can see glimpses of the bay beyond. I can sit at my kitchen table and I watch the tide come in. Um, It's very calming, you know. uh, We usually have chairs that uh, we have set down here. Um, As you can tell though, we've chose to put a fence up now along the edge. Uh, We always had it kind of fenced in all the way around, but now we've put one up uh, along the edge here. But still, it doesn't obstruct my view of watching the calmness, you know. And sometimes it's rough, like our life is rough, and then calms down. Lisa has lived around here most of her life. I wouldn't have raised my kids anywhere else. They learned to be very uh, caring and care about the neighbors that are beside them. All the kids that grew up here, uh, my daughter's 31, And so all those kids are now growing up and having families. And my son, who's 26, same thing. His friends still stop in here with their new babies. And because you stay connected. So many people have said that what drew them to this area is the quiet, that this was a peaceful place, which is why what happened on April 18th is so shocking. Portapic is less than a 10-minute drive from Lisa and Lori's place in Highland Village. It only has about 100 year-round residents, with more who come to enjoy the Nova Scotia summer. There are no shops or restaurants here, just homes and farms spread out along Highway 2. There are a couple of small country roads that run from the highway down to the coast, and a few more that run north the other way. And the neighborhood where this story begins is south of Highway 2 and east of the Portapique River. If you want to take a look at it, we've got a map on our website, and we'll put the link in our show notes. 
Portapic Beach Road runs roughly north-south, parallel to the river, and it ends almost at the shoreline. About halfway down Portapic Beach Road is a left turn onto an even narrower gravel road called Orchard Beach Drive. This is part of a private community, mostly a newer development with nice homes and cottages. One of the buildings on Orchard Beach Drive was a big garage known to some as the warehouse. The owner was Gabriel Wortman. Over the years, he had bought a few properties nearby, including one of the most expensive houses in the area on Portapic Beach Road, a cottage worth more than half a million dollars, designed to take full advantage of the quiet in the view of the river with a big outdoor patio. This was a second home for him. He owned two denture clinics in the capital region, one in Halifax and another across the harbor in Dartmouth. That's where his main home was, too. But since the pandemic began and his businesses closed, he had been spending all his time in the quiet coastal community of Portapique. The warehouse was like a big garage, but inside it looked more like a Canadian-themed bar, with touches of buffalo plaid sprinkled on the pine-paneled walls. It had a second-story loft built to display dirt bikes and motorcycles, more than a dozen of them. In photos, you can see what appears to be a taxidermied black bear next to a sled and a toboggan hanging on the wall. Lights twinkled overhead. It seems like no expense was spared. What you can't see in the photos is that there were hiding places built in. A spot by the liquor dispensers at the bar concealed a gun. There were nooks and crannies hiding illegal firearms including military-style guns, part of a collection. The cement floor was uncovered, and part of the ground floor was a shop. Wortman also collected vehicles. He had a truck, a jeep, and a number of white Ford Taurus cars. Decommissioned police cars, the kind you can get for cheap at auction. Some of them he drove, and others he'd been using for parts. In one photo... There's a car on the main floor of the warehouse, like a crowning achievement on display, a prized possession. It's what appears to be a white RCMP cruiser, complete with all the markings. And it would become a focal point for the terror that was about to be unleashed. I promised you I would tell you this story hour by hour, and I will in this episode and the next. A lot happened over that first hour of this nightmare, so we want to make sure we cover it in detail. And before we walk you through the first hour, I want you to get to know the people who were lost during that tragic night. So that's where we're going to start. Early on the evening of Saturday, April 18th, Lisa McCulley was out for a walk on what she called her private beach. She owned a big red house on Orchard Beach Drive, just across the street from Gabriel Wortman's warehouse. The 49-year-old had traveled the world before she settled down beside the ocean in Port-a-Pic. She had wavy blonde hair, a magnetic personality, and a great sense of humor. Lisa was a year older than me, and my brother was a year older than her. 
So mom had three of us under three years of age. We were very close. And uh, Lisa was, she was just the boss. She was a natural leader and uh, everywhere she went, she assumed the leadership role and people relied on her for that to, to just always have a solution to every problem. That's Jenny Kirstead, Lisa's younger sister. I, I always thought she had celebrity status. Yeah, she, she was just so vibrant and uh, charismatic. We drove across Canada in our 20s after we acquired our university degrees. We just jumped in the car and went. And it was just the most amazing time. We were both free. We, we had no jobs. And it was, she was so adventurous. Jenny said that Lisa cared deeply for others. And that was made clear when their older brother, Jonathan, was diagnosed with cancer. She was such a doer. We lost our brother not three years ago to cancer. He, he died fairly quickly, and she just covered all the details. She was absolutely remarkable. There's a phrase you hear thrown around a lot, living life to the fullest. It's kind of a cliche, but I think it really applies to Lisa. She traveled. She... She had work that she loved as a teacher, and she had two children that she adored, and she really savored every moment. Jenny said being a mother had been a lifelong goal for her sister. I think she put everyone to shame. <laughs> she was, again, she was just so dynamic and involved and passionate and protective and uh, constantly coming up with new and creative ideas. And, you know, if, if other parents wanted to, wanted their children to spend time with anyone, it was with Lisa. In early April, during the COVID-19 lockdown, while everyone was staying apart, Lisa reached out to loved ones with a video of herself, her son Marcus, and her daughter Alex on Facebook. Here's a little goodnight song to all our friends and family. We miss you. From the Macaulay's. Jenny said Lisa had passed on her talent and love of music to her kids. you know, of the, the vintage of the folk festivals and Sarah McLaughlin's Lilith Fair. And I just remember she had a VW van at one point. And uh, the, the fondest memory that I have of her is, you know, sitting on a turned over milk carton and she had a, a shaker egg duct tape to her foot and then the harmonica and the guitar and so she had four instruments being played at once her voice the harmonica the guitar and the shaker she was a one-person show that energy is part of what made her a great teacher lisa taught grade three and four at debert elementary school about 20 minutes away but the pandemic shut down schools on march 16th at the start of march break like so many, Lisa was juggling, working from home and homeschooling her own kids. 
It wasn't an easy task, but she wasn't the kind of teacher who was going to be thrown off by a global pandemic. Scott Armstrong, the principal at her school, said she was able to support kids in her own class and beyond. She grabbed that with both hands and was, became a leader on our staff supporting other teachers in the best way to do this. And not only did she support the students in her classroom and, and other teachers, she actually developed lessons and activities for families in, in, in Portapic and that community who she was involved with in her church community. She was sending lessons and activities to parents uh, throughout northern Nova Scotia. On Saturday, April 18th, as the sun was setting, Lisa took a much-needed break and walked to the beach. She sent a photo to her sister, a wine glass held up in front of the rocky shore, with the last of the sun fading on the horizon. That was her last photo that she sent me, and uh, she, she loved that beach. She loved the ocean. She loved nature and she loved life. And that was such a reflection of, of her just enjoying life. She really enjoyed life and she, she, she didn't take things too seriously. Lisa McCauley's neighbors, Greg and Jamie Blair, had two young boys around the same age as her kids. Their houses were right next door to one another. Just a little stretch of trees separated the two. Greg has two older sons from a previous relationship. Tyler is the oldest. He looks a lot like his dad. The same easy smile. But he wasn't so sure about Jamie when she entered the picture about 19 years ago. I didn't like her at first. (laughs) I think it took me a little while to get to like her, but then... I loved her. What did she bring out in your dad? Uh, she definitely brought out the best of him, most of the time anyway. Um, she looked after him. She definitely looked after him. <laughs> looked after all of us. Yes. <laughs> That's Kelly, Tyler's aunt. She said the older boys gave Jamie a goofy nickname, one that stuck. She always ordered chicken. So the boys. They were younger, of course, so they just started calling her chicken. And till this day, we still call it. We know her as chicken. (laughs) From everything I've heard, Greg and Jamie were the life of the party, part of a close-knit family that spent a lot of time together. Greg was often found with an Alexander Keith's in his hand. Jamie liked sweeter drinks, like coolers. The couple moved to Port-a-Pic to be closer to Greg's parents, full-time in August of 2019, with their two youngest sons, Alexander and Jack. They loved being outside. Fishing, hunting, four-wheeling, camping, swimming. Uh, Alexander loves chickens. I got a growing chicken farm at the house. <laughs> Jack, he's... Jack's into everything. He's a, I call him a little seal because he's always in the pool. Yeah. But hockey, baseball, I got them starting to golf. Because of the pandemic, Greg and Jamie had shut down their business, GB Gas and Energy, a propane and natural gas installation and service company. And it was a true family business. Jamie was the bookkeeper, and Greg's older sons had followed in his footsteps. Yeah, I worked with them even on a day off in junior high and stuff. 
Then right out of high school, I moved to Halifax and I got a job doing it. And then I took a little break because it it's a small industry, it's bigger now. But then I got back into it there a few years ago and still doing it. I, I worked with my dad a little bit when I was a teenager and we always kind of butted heads. I'm curious what it was like for you working with your dad. We never butted heads working. We used to butt heads a little bit, but then we realized we're the same and we just realized nobody was gonna win that battle. <laughs> so oh. we, we honestly, I don't think we fought at all in the last probably eight, <laughs> 10 years. Tyler wanted to be extra cautious about opening the business because of all of the unknowns surrounding COVID-19 and because he was a new dad. Greg and Jamie were very much in love with their granddaughter, Hayden, the first girl in the family. I told my dad on our way to work one morning, his face just lit up. He was, no, he was super excited. He was more excited than I was, I think. (laughs) The Blairs were planning to get back to work on April 20th. They never got that chance. On April 18th, Greg and Jamie had been out working in their yard most of the day. That night, they were at home with the two youngest boys. A fire started in the fireplace. I remember those quiet days in April. A state of emergency for the coronavirus pandemic had been in effect for about a month in Nova Scotia, and it felt like the whole world pressed pause. There was no warning that a violent 13-hour rampage was about to begin. I need to take a minute here to tell you that what happened that night in Port-a-Pic has been really hard to figure out. There's confusion about what happened, and there are so many rumors. Officially, the RCMP have not given many details about what went on. What's been most shocking of all to me is that even the families of those directly affected by this tragedy don't always have all the answers. We'll be sharing details from multiple sources, including court documents that summarize the notes of RCMP officers who did witness interviews after the fact. Media outlets, including Global News, have been fighting to make those documents public. Here's what we've gathered. Portapic has no streetlights. And on the night of April 18th, the moon was waning. It was just a couple of days away from a new moon. So it was dark. A calm night, cold, about two degrees Celsius, with temperatures still dropping. And we know that sometime between 9.30 and 10 p.m., Portapic's sleepy quiet shattered. This is the start of hour one. The rampage begins with Gabriel Wartman and his longtime partner. Just so we're clear, her name is part of the public record in some court documents. But we're not using her real name. We're going to call her Beth. My colleague Mercedes Stevenson, who's the Ottawa bureau chief for Global News, has been able to piece together some of the story through police sources. Her sources say that Wartman and Beth were having drinks on the evening of April 18th when things started to unravel. They believed that Wartman and his partner 
had been having drinks with friends or with neighbors. Uh, I was told by two different sources, there was some kind of an argument that happened at that gathering. And after that, Gabriel Wortman and his partner left. Uh, and that the shooting started at some point after that. But the exact location and who was there and how many people and why has always been a bit fuzzy. The court documents say Wortman and Beth were having drinks at the warehouse. A lot is redacted, but the documents don't say they went anywhere else after that. Police sources say they got into an argument. They headed home to the cottage, just one street over on Portapique Beach Road. Things escalated, and Wortman assaulted Beth. I spoke with a number of police sources about this, and the commonalities that we kept hearing was that she was not in good shape, uh, that uh, she had been viciously attacked, that it was it was visibly noticeable that that she had been the victim of some kind of violence. Wortman had bound her in some way, either with rope or with handcuffs. Uh, I initially had information that was saying she was bound with rope. Later, we heard handcuffs, but it was uh, made clear to me by multiple sources that after she was assaulted, uh, she was in some way restrained against her will and that she feared for her life, according to those sources, that um, she believed something terrible was about to happen. She believed that she would likely be a victim, uh, a further victim of that violence. And that assault is when the violence begins that night, to our knowledge. I definitely heard her hands were bound, uh, that she was assaulted, attacked, one of the sources said it happened while she was asleep, that she woke up to him attacking her. But those sort of details are still unclear to me. According to the court documents, this is what Beth told police happened next. Wortman started to pour gasoline around the cottage. The floor was soaked, and he told her to be careful. As they left the cottage, he made her look back. She hadn't seen him light a match, but their home was on fire. Beth told police she knew things were serious because he was proud of the cottage and it was going up in flames. Outside was one of the decommissioned police cars, the one she used to drive around. He poured gas on that too. He told her they were heading to Dartmouth and she thought he was going to burn his other house and the denture clinic. He also said they were going somewhere else, a place that's redacted in the court documents. Beth told police she thought he was going to kill someone there. But first, they went back to the warehouse. How they got there is unclear. Beth said she saw Wartman pour gas on the truck outside. She offered to move the Jeep, and he said, Do you think I'm stupid? She watched him collect more guns from hiding places around the bar and put them in the front passenger seat of the car that he had meticulously prepared to look just like an RCMP cruiser. He had uniforms, too, so he would look just like an RCMP officer. He'd been stockpiling gas and ammunition. And then somehow, Beth escaped. I heard multiple versions of, of how she was restrained, and I heard multiple versions 
of how she got away. And they ranged from that he had put her in the back of one of the police vehicles to she had um, been tied up in the woods and managed to get loose while he went back to get firearms and gasoline. Police haven't said how she escaped. In the court documents, that information is redacted. The documents say she ran from the warehouse, past a blue shed. She found a truck in a grassy area and climbed inside, but she worried the interior light would give her away. So instead, she headed for the woods, tossing her jacket as she ran, in the hopes the police would find it. She could hear gunshots and saw more fires start. And the terror was only just beginning. Word that something horrible was happening in port began to trickle out. And Tyler Blair started to worry. Well, I read it on Facebook late Saturday night. And I tried calling them both, couldn't get an answer. I believe I tried calling my grandparents, but I knew they'd probably be in bed anyway. So then I finally just convinced myself they were just in bed sleeping. I knew they were outside working and drinking all day, so. Like so many other people, Tyler had no way of knowing what was really happening that night. No way to know that his family was being targeted. As I've mentioned, the RCMP have never released an exact timeline of events, and we may never know for sure how it all unfolded. We think that at around 10 p.m., Wartman showed up at the Blair home. This was after Beth escaped and after he lit the warehouse on fire. Only thing I know is he went there first, and I can only think because he knew there was a big hunter, he had lots of rifles, and that could have threw a stick into his whole plan. It's the only thing I can think of, I, I don't know. Tyler's aunt, Kelly, said that's what police told their family. Apparently, my brother, he was on the deck and he was shot first. Okay. And that's when Jamie was in the kitchen, I'm assuming, and just yelled to the boys to go hide. And Jamie Blair spent the last moments of her life trying to make sure her boys were safe, trying to take care of her family the way she always had. After Jamie was killed, the gunman tried to set fire to the house by scattering logs from the fireplace. And as they smoldered, the Blair boys were able to find a way out. They escaped. They hid in Alexander's chicken coop. It's believed that Lisa McCulley heard what was happening next door, heard the gunshots, and jumped into action. She told her kids to hide in the basement and call 911, then went to help. And tragically, she became another victim. According to Kelly Blair, the gunman didn't leave the area right away. The four kids eventually ended up hiding together at the McCulley's place and waited for help. Meanwhile, Corey Ellison heard gunshots from his father's house nearby. The 42-year-old and his brother were visiting for the night. Corey was the kind of guy who liked to help others. So when he noticed a fire burning in the area, he wanted to get a closer look. He walked down the road on his own 
even though his brother thought it wasn't a good idea. He never came back. We know there were a series of 911 calls from Port-a-Pic between 10 and 10.05 p.m. The closest RCMP detachment is in Bible Hill, which is about a 35-minute drive away, just outside of Truro. There are also RCMP in Spring Hill and Amherst, both about an hour away. Police say that 26 minutes after the first 911 call, their first officer arrived on scene. A second officer was there within minutes. And what they walked into that night is something even veteran officers have described to Mercedes as a war zone. There are so many things about this story that are so hard to figure out from our perspective. And I'm wondering what you know from the perspective of police about how difficult it was once they arrived on scene in Portapique that night to determine what had actually happened and in what order. I mean, just an incredibly, unthinkably difficult, difficult emotionally, difficult from an investigation perspective, uh, difficult from just piecing together basic information. And, you know, uh, Sarah, as, as any of your listeners know who live in the area, it's very dark there at night. Um, we've also heard from witnesses. It was very, very dark. It was hard to see. And what I've heard from police uh, is that when officers first arrived on the scene, they did not know the full scale of the damage. They couldn't see it. Uh, and as they start looking around and trying to clear houses, it starts to become clear uh, this is not a shooting um, of one or two or a few people. This is an absolutely horrific mass violence event that houses have been lit on fire, that people have been executed point blank by an unknown gunman. And they start to really wonder at this point, what are we dealing with? Who's done this and why? When police arrived, it appeared like they had an advantage, one based on geography. The only roads in and out of the area lead to Highway 2, which made it easier to block off and set up a perimeter. They thought it was possible the shooter was lying in wait, hiding somewhere, or targeting more people. They were dealing with a dark and densely forested area. What they didn't know is that Wartman had already targeted so many others in the tiny community of Portapic. Lisa McCulley, Greg and Jamie Blair, and Corey Ellison were not the only lives lost that night. As fires burned and chaos reigned, others hid and waited for help to arrive as Wartman's rampage raged on. By the time police surged into Portapique from all over the province, nine more people would be killed. We don't know if the gunman planned to kill his neighbors that night. His motivations haven't been made clear from the court documents or from police. We have no idea if he was looking for his partner, Beth, or if he was targeting people over grudges or perceived slights. Mercedes has heard a few different theories from her police sources. One theory was that he was enraged that he'd been embarrassed in front of friends and family by this alleged argument that occurred at the gathering and that he was tracking down people who had witnessed it. 
Another theory that I heard was that he was out actively looking for her and may have been confronting neighbors to see if she was in their home or if they were protecting her. The third theory that I'd heard was essentially that he went on a rampage uh, looking for her. So you're seeing a common theme here that he's looking for her in all these theories and basically killed anybody he encountered out of pure rage. And of course, Unfortunately, we we don't know because the people who know the answers to those questions are the gunman himself and the victims, and they're not alive. And we don't know a lot about what Mr. Wortman's partner has told the police. There's certainly a belief among the police that whatever happened that night, that domestic violence incident between Wortman and his partner was a trigger point that he intended to hurt her that he had bound her, that he made it clear there was further plans to do more damage. And then the question is whether he essentially went looking for her after she managed to escape, and she did manage to escape him, um, and, and if that was part of what was motivating him. But again, it's still something that's really not super clear, but uh, I do know the investigators believe there's a strong potential uh, that him looking for his partner and, and the anger and the rage just kind of exploded um, and, and whether or not he thought those people knew where his partner was or whether he thought uh, that he was going to kill anybody who could be a witness or whether he was just mindlessly pulling the trigger at that point, we may never know. Days later, as the full scope of this tragedy came into view, police would have to work backwards to retrace the gunman's steps and try to unravel the events of that first hour. We haven't told you everything that happened. There were other families impacted by the gunman's actions, and they've been left to pick up the pieces without knowing all the answers. You know, I know nothing would have saved my parents, nothing would have probably saved anyone on that street that got murdered that day, that night. But, you know, he shouldn't have been able to drive through. That's next time on 13 Hours. Thank you so much for joining us this week. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre is written and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Cress. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Additional reporting for this episode by Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Emergency radio recordings for this episode provided by Broadcastify. Special thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share this important story by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Kress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13 hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13 hours podcast. If you have a question about this episode or series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13 hours at curiouscast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes too. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time 